0: Good morning, and welcome to a special Halloween episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica.
1: And I'm your editor, Bryce. Today, we're going to be telling you a story about the infamous serial killer, John Wayne Gacy.
2: As always, our podcast is sponsored by coffee. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in.
1: We would like to give a brief warning before jumping into this episode as it deals with violent acts against young children. This episode also deals strongly with sexual assault crimes. We will not be going into extreme detail outside of what is necessary to get the story out there. We would advise listener caution for this episode. So, our story begins on March 17th of 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, where the subject of our story, John Wayne Gacy, was born into a pretty normal blue-collar family. His father, John Stanley Gacy, was a World War I veteran and was working as a machinist in an auto repair factory in Chicago. Uh, He grew up Catholic with his two sisters, Joanne Gacy and Karen Gacy, one of which was older and the other was younger, so he was a middle child. Possibly explains a lot. Despite growing up in a fairly average family, on the outside at least, his father began showing signs of abuse due to his frequent alcoholism. So there were many physical assaults on his son, John, some of which would leave him unconscious. His mother would do her best to try to protect him from this, but usually to no avail. So his childhood was, was pretty full of issues, kind of one after the other kept coming. And some of those included, um, at one point, there was an incident of molestation by a family friend. And he also suffered from a congenital heart condition. And what that meant was that he usually wasn't able to join his friends or his schoolmates during any sports or any games, things like that. So we, from a from a young age, became kind of a, a social outcast. And so a lot of these things happened pretty early. So that pretty naturally led to um, just the kind of antisocial behavior that he started to have as a kid. So, you know, this led to, you know, being bullied and mocked at school. And so you don't really find this out till later, but the whole time he was also um, masking and hiding the fact that he was a homosexual and you know this was back in you know the mid nineteen hundreds and it's not nearly as socially acceptable back then as it is today. So that's sort of, you know, added to his, you know, social outcast being made fun of. Um, but he, you know, he did his best to hide this. And throughout all of this, his father kind of saw him as, you know, somewhat of a failure because he wasn't doing sports, he wasn't doing anything, you know, really interesting. And as John gets older, he ends up going through different schools, including his original Catholic schooling. And um, he doesn't he's just not doing very well. He ends up dropping out of school and eventually just leaves his family doesn't really want anything to do with them at this point especially his father so he in 1962 moves to las vegas which at this time he's about 20 years old and so one of the first jobs he gets is as a mortuary attendant and i believe he did a lot of the custodial work there but since he didn't really have a place to live his bosses ended up letting him sleep at this funeral home
0: that's just super creepy to sleep in the funeral home I mean, unless you're into that kind of stuff.
1: Well, as it turns out, he was. And that's the problem.
0: (laughs) It probably only made him more comfortable with being around dead bodies and death, living in an environment like that. Which I see as very problematic to just be comfortable with the death.
1: Well, at this point, all of his early life has been full of mockery and bullying from his family, his friends, everyone around him, I'm sure his you know, sisters didn't really feel accepting of him either. And so, you know, living in a place where you work around people who don't say anything to you, they can't say anything negative, of course. So maybe that felt okay for him. Maybe he felt comfortable. But so this is where some of the psychological issues start to present themselves. And this part is, is not very easy to listen to. So small warning there as well. But so he would, while he was there alone he would find himself undressing some of the dead male bodies. Um, He would talk to them, he would caress them and hug them, and at some points it said that he would attempt to have sex with some of these dead bodies. I'm not sure how much actually went on after that, but it's just said that he at least attempted to.
0: You know, I'm never a big fan of the word caress, and it's for situations like this, and it's just not okay.
1: Not when it deals with dead bodies, Abby? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not particularly, no.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's learned later on that he actually sort of surprised himself with the behavior that he was exhibiting. And it almost, he almost scared himself with some of the things that he found himself doing. And so that sort of lends itself to what some of these psychological issues were. Um, because I guess some of the things he was doing, he didn't quite realize he was doing until after the fact. Maybe that's just what he said. Not too sure. But either way, some serious psychological stuff going on.
2: Did he claim to, like, black out or anything when he was doing this? Or he just didn't said he didn't remember?
1: These kind of details, it didn't seem like he talked very openly about. And I think when we get to your part later on, Erica, it sounds like a lot of these things were sort of his attempt at getting out of, you know, some of these crimes, claiming that he wasn't completely there. And that sounds like that might be what this is, but the next step of the story um, actually kind of does make sense for this. So at this point, he, it is said that he was so terrified of himself in some ways that it caused him to want to move back in with his parents. So there must have been something, something going on there in his head where he wanted to leave this abusive home life so badly, but what was going on at his work scared him into coming back home.
0: And I think that kind of points to him at least acknowledging that there is a right and wrong.
1: Yeah, so that's that's an important part to mention, because sometimes when people have certain psychological issues, it's hard for them to distinguish between what is morally right and morally wrong. And that becomes one of the main reasons why they commit a lot of their crimes is because they just think it's okay. As he comes back to the Chicago area, he's living back in Illinois. This is when he starts to kind of get a grasp on his life. So he goes to school for business. He goes to the Northwestern Business College and graduates with a degree in business in 1963. So one of the first jobs he gets with this new knowledge and degree is working for a shoe company. And he, he's very skilled at what he does. He ends up managing sort of the business side of this. Um, it's called the the Nunbush Shoe Company. I think I'm saying that right. But he very, very quickly becomes a manager for this company. And while he's working there is when he meets a lady by the name of Marilyn Myers. And this is who he ends up falling in love with. And they sort of settle into a... Fairly average, fairly respectable middle class life. So, sort of what he grew up into. So, she she actually comes from a pretty wealthy family. Her parents owned a chain of Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Springfield, Illinois.
0: Was it finger-looking good?
1: I sure as heck hope so. <laughs> but yeah, so he, he marries into this wealthy family. And at this point, it is around September of 1964. And so... During this period of the middle 1960s, he he gets involved in quite a bit of different things. So he's marrying into this new family. He's helping her family manage these chain of restaurants, and he's also joining the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCS. And this is um, this can be described as a nonprofit for young men. Um, it helps them develop personal and leadership skills, it's sort of like a community volunteering system. And so he becomes very well known within this group, and by 1965 becomes the vice president. So he's, he's pretty well settled into his new family now. And when they decide to move to Iowa, to the town of Waterloo is when they start their own family by having two kids. And it's at this point in his life where his psychological issues start to present themselves even more, and he starts getting into trouble with the law. The mystery has been solved. So please go to FireDeptCoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way.
2: So the first time that John ran into trouble with the law was in 1968, when a teen employee of his, Mark Miller, came forward with the claim that John had sexually assaulted him. John was arrested for this and sentenced to 10 years in prison at the Anamosi State Penitentiary. However, he was released on parole about 18 months later in 1970. While John was in prison, his wife and mother of his two children at the time divorced him which is fair, I think.
0: Yeah, I'd probably divorce my husband if he got in trouble for molesting young boys.
2: Yeah, I don't know that I would want to stay with him after that either. John didn't react well to this, though, and he told her that he no longer wanted to see his two toddlers and that he would consider both the kids and the ex-wife dead to him. That just seems a little harsh to me, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's kind of sad to make a choice like that and then also disown your kids because of your failed choice. Yeah, but I also, in the end, think that
2: maybe it was better for the kids. I agree. It probably was. After he was released from prison, John was back in Chicago. He moved into a two-bedroom house at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue in the Norwood Park Township. John made quick friends with his neighbors Edward and Lily Grexa and hung out with them frequently. He would join them for poker nights at their house and even spent Christmas with them. Edward and Lily were completely unaware of the true identity of the man they were spending their time with. In 1971, John was arrested again for another sexual assault. However, these charges did not stick as the teen boy did not come to the trial and it caused the case to be thrown out. As far as we are aware, John took some time off from his assault and didn't commit his first murder until January of 1972. His first known murder victim was 16-year-old Timothy McCoy. Timothy was traveling home from a Christmas vacation when he stopped for a layover at the Greyhound bus station. John confessed that he picked the boy up and took him back to his home where he stabbed the boy to death. Timothy's body was buried in the crawlspace and then covered in concrete. Timothy was considered an unidentified victim for years and wasn't discovered until May of 1986 when an orthodontist named Dr. Edward Pavlik used dental records to finally determine his identity. Dr. Pavlik stated that Timothy's fillings were very unique and only about 2 or 3% of the population at that time would have had fillings like it. The fillings, along with the unique structure of Timothy's teeth, is what ultimately led to this discovery. On June 1st, 1972, John remarried to a woman named Carol Hoff. Carol was a divorced mother with two daughters, and she was in a pretty emotional state of mind as she had just recently divorced her husband. She was aware of John's history of arrests and the time that he spent in prison, but believed that he had changed since then and was not the same criminal he was just a year ago.
0: A year seems like a pretty short amount of time to have changed from a crime as serious as his.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think that you're going from molesting children to all of a sudden being this stand-up guy a year later. I mean, I'm all for rehabilitation and things, but I don't think it works that quickly.
1: Especially a mom that was just recently divorced and has children because a lot of his crimes dealt with children so i feel like if i was in her place i'd be really on edge really suspicious and just overall be protective of my family
2: yeah absolutely and i think that that's kind of why in everything that i was reading it talked a lot about how she was in an emotional state as she was no longer with her first husband and so they believe that he just kind of played on that and weaseled his way in well and
0: unfortunately at this point he's already killed somebody correct
2: yeah so at this point he would have already killed timothy
0: but she just had no idea and i guess was if there were warning signs which i mean there were if he had been in prison she was just completely missing it which she
2: sees them later on so we'll get to that carol and her daughter's moved into his home in Chicago, and they also made friends with the Grexa family living next door. John and Carol invited Lily and Edward over for barbecues and other social activities.
0: I find it really interesting that he's able to make friends and hang out with his neighbors and people around him. He reminds me a lot of, like, Ted Bundy, where he had such, or BTK, where they have this really dark side, but they're able to compartmentalize it.
2: Yeah, I think that that kind of just goes to show the sociopath that we're dealing with.
1: I think those traits exhibited themselves the most often with criminals who also displayed high levels of intelligence. And so their crime behavior doesn't come from a source of just not having a very well working brain and just almost more animalistic than anything else. But Just because they are intelligent but also have a desire to do bad things, they can get away with it and be perceived as okay. In a way, it's sort of like somebody that does drugs that is also intelligent. Um, They can often be perceived as someone who doesn't do drugs and be perceived as someone who is clean and okay um, just because they want to maintain a lifestyle, but they also have the intelligence to to hide it very well.
0: And this probably also had an effect on why Carol didn't see the issues with him. He clearly was good at misleading people to believe he was somebody he was not.
2: Yeah, which all the things that you guys just described is pretty much a sociopath. So it's slowly starting to come out to Carol, though, that John isn't who she believes or even hopes that he is. The Grexa family would complain when they would go over to their house and I don't know that they complained necessarily to them, but I know that it definitely came later on. They complained about a stench coming from the Gacy home, and Lily Grexa said that she was sure that a rat had died under the floorboards, and John would always claim that the smell was coming from moisture buildup in the crawlspace.
0: This is interesting because I'll get to it a little bit later on, but there's another situation where the same exact thing happens, where someone's reporting a weird smell, and he says it has to do with the moisture.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I've never personally smelled a dead body, but I feel like you would know the difference between the smell of moisture buildup and rotting flesh.
0: Yeah, there's mold and then there's
2: decomposition. John and Carol actually threw many parties at their house. One of them even attracted over 300 guests. They typically threw the parties with themes, and the most popular ones were a Western theme and a luau-themed party, which John really liked that so many people were attending his parties. It was giving him attention, and he really liked that.
0: I bet he really craved it since, as a child, he didn't get any good attention, that is. It's a middle child. (laughs) right. So in 1974,
2: John Wayne Gacy decided that he would like to start his own business and opened a contracting business called Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance Contractors, or PDM Contractors for short. He was known for hiring young boys and claimed that he did this just to help keep the cost of employees low, but it was later discovered, though, that he was hiring young boys to help fulfill his sadistic sexual fantasies. Over time, Carol was starting to notice her husband's odd behavior. He was an insomniac and had terrible mood swings, and Carol stated that the less he slept, the worse his behaviors got. Carol and John's sex life completely stopped, and Carol ended up finding gay porn that John had been hiding. John eventually admitted this to Carol when confronted with the magazines that she had found around the home, and he told her that he preferred men to women. And this was enough for Carol, so she ended up moving out of the home in 1975 and filing for divorce. And their divorce finalized in 1976. After the divorce, John kept living his life as if nothing had happened. He started to work toward fulfilling his dreams of working in politics. He had the end goal of running for public office. To go with his campaign and to try to get his name out there, he started taking on opportunities to volunteer in the community. He and his employees helped clean up the Democratic Party headquarters for Robert Matwick, and then John decided that wasn't enough. So he decided to do more and started doing what he is really known for and started dressing up as Pogo the Clown, or Patches the Clown, and entertaining families and children at parties. This is what he needed to get close to people and to gain the trust of the community.
1: Was Pogo and Patches, were those two different entities, two different clowns?
2: Yes, they were. Um, He had two different costumes that he wore for each, and they're actually both on display at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum.
1: That's where we went.
2: Yeah, it is. So I'll post pictures of those on social media.
1: Which at the time, I didn't realize what we were looking at. But Eric was like, hey, look at this. I'm like, I don't I don't know what that is. But now I very much do. And it was really interesting. It was his actual costumes right in front of you behind glass.
2: It kind of gave you chills. Well, it gave me chills anyways, since I knew what they were. But just knowing that this serial killer had actually worn these, it was just kind of a creepy thought. So... Robert Matwick saw all of the things that John was doing for the community and decided to nominate him for the Street Lighting Commission. John worked his way to Secretary-Treasurer for the Lighting Commission and finally had his foot in politics. This didn't last long, though, because shortly after he was promoted to Secretary-Treasurer, there were rumors going around saying that he had an interest in a young boy, but as we all know, the rumors weren't really rumors. Tony Antonucci was 16 years old at the time, and he had been one of the boys helping John clean up the Democratic Party headquarters. And apparently, while he was helping, John made a sexual advance toward him. Tony stated that when John did this, he threatened to hit him with a chair, which made John stop what he was doing. And then Tony said that John continued to joke about it, but left him alone for about a month after the incident. John was determined, though and decided to make another advance toward Tony. John tried to trick Tony into wearing handcuffs after getting Tony to visit his home. And his plan was to handcuff Tony and then sexually assault him. But Tony outsmarted John and he didn't let the handcuffs fully tighten around his wrists. And when John began to undress him, Tony broke free from the cuffs and instead handcuffed John. And he left him handcuffed until John promised that he would leave Tony alone and make no more advances toward him. John agreed to this, and Tony let him go. So after this incident, John left Tony alone for good, and Tony even continued to work for John for about a year afterwards. John's next known victim was John Butkovich. He was a previous employee of John's that had recently quit the job. John Butkovich had worked for John Gacy for about eight months, and when he quit, John had apparently not given him his paycheck, So, on July 31st, 1975, John left his home in Chicago and headed to his former boss's house to demand that he got his last paycheck. It was reported that John Wayne Gacy had a tendency to not pay his employees on time. When he arrived, a big argument broke out, and the circumstances after that are not completely known. John was never seen alive after this encounter, but I did find in some places that John Bukovich had two of his friends come with him to this confrontation, and they actually all left John Gacy's home and he dropped his friends off safely. So sometime after that is when he was believed to have gone missing. John was known for strangling most of his victims with rope and tying them to boards and then handcuffing them. And many of his neighbors would actually come forward and say that they heard sounds of screaming and suffering coming from his house
0: in the middle of the night. So, they heard these things, but never reported anything. Correct. Until after the fact, I guess.
2: Yeah, until the trial. So, I'm not sure if they just thought that maybe he was listening to some really loud horror movies or into some really kinky stuff. I don't know, but...
0: It's sad to think about maybe how many victims could have been spared if they would have just come forward and let the police know that they thought possibly something was going on over there that shouldn't be happening.
2: Well, and I think that, and I'm not trying to victim blame or anything, but Tony should have probably come forward about it. That was two advances that John had made toward him. And he even had him handcuffed for a minute there. And I felt like that's something that he could have come forward and maybe that would have Stopped him,
1: And it's not like he was just expressing his, like, homosexuality towards him. It was, like, actual could-become-physical-assault type of advances.
0: I agree, but I'm also going to play devil's advocate here. And I don't think you can put that on any person to have the courage to come forward with something like that.
2: Yeah, and that's why I said I don't want to victim blame. But I just, you can't help but kind of wonder and, like, think about those situations, like... What would happen? I think
0: we can all agree it's definitely John Wayne Gacy's fault, though.
2: Oh, absolutely. So, John Wayne Gacy was slowly starting to kind of be connected to the murders, and he realizes that he's running out of room in his crawl space. so he starts to think a little outside the box, and he starts... Disposing of the bodies in the De Plains River off of the I 55 bridge. And the last four of his victims were known to be disposed there. So I'm going to go through and list off all of his known murder victims with their age and the date of their disappearance. Eight of his victims are still unidentified to this day. So the first known and identified murder victim is Timothy McCoy, who was aged 18 and disappeared January 3rd, 1972. Then John Butkovich, who was aged 17 and disappeared July 21st, 1975. Daryl Sampson, who was aged 18 and disappeared April 6th, 1976. Randall Ruffett, who was aged 15 and disappeared May 14th, 1976. Sam Stapleton, who was aged 14 and also disappeared May 14th, 1976. Michael Bonin, who was aged 17 and disappeared June 3rd, 1976. William Carroll, who was aged 16 and disappeared June 13th, 1976. Rick Johnston, who was aged seventeen and disappeared august sixth, nineteen seventy six. Kenneth Parker, aged sixteen, and Michael Marino, aged fourteen, both disappeared october twenty fifth, nineteen seventy-six. Gregory Godzik, aged seventeen, who disappeared december twelfth, nineteen seventy-six. John Zick, aged nineteen, who disappeared january twentieth, nineteen seventy-seven. John Prestige, aged twenty, who disappeared march fifteenth, nineteen seventy seven. Matthew Bowman, aged 19, who disappeared July 5th, 1977; Robert Gilroy, aged 18, who disappeared September 15th, 1977; John Mowry, aged 19, who disappeared September 25th, 1977; Russell Nelson, aged 21, who disappeared October 17th, 1977; Robert Winch, aged 16, who disappeared November 10th, 1977. Tommy Bowling, aged twenty, who disappeared november eighteenth, nineteen seventy seven. David Talsma, aged nineteen, who disappeared december ninth, nineteen seventy-seven. William Kindred, aged nineteen, who disappeared february sixteenth, nineteen seventy eight. Timothy O'Rook, aged twenty, who disappeared june nineteen seventy eight. Frank Landergan, aged nineteen, who disappeared november fourth, nineteen seventy eight. James Mazara, aged 21, who disappeared November 24th, 1978, and Robert Peast, aged 15, who disappeared December 11th, 1978.
1: So when you say that there are eight unidentified victims, does that mean that those are bodies that were found that were not identified or those murders that he admitted to that just did not have an identity to go along with them?
2: That means that they were bodies that were found that don't have an identity to go with them. It's believed that he was picking kids that were runaways and things
0: like that, so their families might not notice them missing. And for anybody not keeping count, his known victims who were murdered is at 33, but it is expected that there's likely more that we just don't know about, and he buried their bodies at an unidentified location. To talk a little bit about John Wayne Gacy's last victim, Robert Peast. On December 11th, 1978, Robert Peast was 15 years old and working at a pharmacy in De Plains, Illinois. He was finishing up his shifts, and he told his mom that he was going to go talk to a contractor after work about a possible job and that he would come home after that. However, he never made it home. And that night, his parents filed a missing persons report because they knew that there is something wrong. They knew there's no way Robert would not have come home. So after filing the report, police followed up with employees at the pharmacy trying to figure out who this contractor was that Robert was going to meet and got a name, John Wayne Gacy. He had been at the pharmacy a little bit before closing and talking to the employees there about work through his contracting business. The officers do a background check on Gacy and find his sentencing of sodomy in Iowa and that he was in prison for a bit of time. And they obviously decide he could be a suspect. So they go to his house to talk to him. Gacy denies everything, says he doesn't know Robert, knows nothing about it but the police decide they better put some surveillance on him to see if he does anything suspicious that might lead them to finding Robert. They eventually are awarded a search warrant for Gacy's home, and they went in there and checked it out. And one thing that I saw that was noted was how neat and tidy John's home was, which I find kind of interesting. I guess whenever you think of someone who's maybe like a serial killer, you don't think about a really uptight and clean home.
2: Yeah, that wouldn't be what I was picturing. I'd probably be picturing something like messy and kind of... Like hoarders. Yeah. I always
0: picture stacks of magazines and newspapers. (laughs) But no, it was really clean, but they do find some things that are questionable. So they find some handcuffs, garter belts, a receipt from the pharmacy that Robert works at, and a class ring. And through further investigation, they find out that ring belonged to John Zick, who was a recent high school graduate that went missing in January 20th of 1977, who Erica just mentioned was one of his victims. Through further investigation, police also find out that Two of Gacy's past employees, Gregory Godzik and Johnny Bukovic, also had gone missing and not been heard from in two years. At John Wayne Gacy's home was identified as one of Robert Peace's co-workers receipt that she'd put in his pocket, his coat pocket for, I don't know, one reason or another. But that tied Gacy to being with Robert and Robert possibly being in Gacy's home.
2: Yeah, there wouldn't really be any other reason for John to have that unless he had had contact with Robert.
0: Interviews with some of Gacy's employees also revealed that Gacy had asked them to build some trenches in his crawl space for what he said was new plumbing. Um, we do know that he, we found a lot of the bodies in his crawl space, so it was not for new plumbing. On December 20th, 1978, the detectives had been following Gacy for eight days at this point, and that night they followed him to his attorney's office where Gacy spent the entire night. They then followed him to a gas station where they were able to actually arrest him for possession of marijuana and brought him into custody. On December 21st, 1978, Gacy was in custody at this point and actually had confessed to he said murdering one person in self-defense and then buried the body under the garage. And so investigators were able to go back into Gacy's home because of this claim. How is that self-defense? I mean, I know when I murder someone in self-defense, I always put him under my garage. So maybe that was the same mindset. BRB going to go check under the garage. <laughs>
1: Is this a confession, Abby?
0: Hey, guys, it wasn't a real confession. Don't use that against me. Anyway, investigators are like, ah, uh, sketchy. So they go to his house, and they actually first wanted to look into the crawl space because of what they had heard the earlier employees saying. Soon after digging into the crawl space, they start to find bodies and end up discovering 29 bodies in his home. During this, at some point, They asked Gacy to do a sketch of where the bodies were and we can post that picture. I guess it was pretty accurate and it confuses me looking at it, but you could tell he wasn't super artistic, which is ironic because of something we find out later. What they do discover, though, is that Peace was not one of the bodies they found in the corral space. And after interrogating Gacy, he lets them know were to find some more of his victims, which, as Erica mentioned earlier, was at a bridge over the Displains River. That's where four more of his victims were found. Something I found kind of interesting, and I'm kind of curious what you guys think about it, Gacy did a prison interview later on after he was already sentenced, and he says a lot of interesting things in it. One of them being, though, that he hates being associated with other serial killers, claiming he's not like them and he's different, and he actually says that he didn't commit any crimes. He specifically talks about Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and how he doesn't want to be associated with them.
1: How does he think that he's different? If he doesn't want to be associated with other serial killers, keyword other serial killers, but says that he hasn't done anything at all, hasn't done any crimes.
0: How does he define crime? I'm not sure. I think it's really interesting that he said that. And I didn't watch the whole interview, just like clips from it. Like I said, at this point, he's now saying he didn't actually murder anybody, which is just crazy to me. I don't understand how you can have that many bodies in your house and claim innocence.
1: So he simultaneously claimed that he had no idea the bodies were there, but also drew a map of where the bodies were?
0: Yeah, he actually, I mean, he did the map and he confessed earlier on and then later on retracted it. Well, and when I was researching, I was reading about how he
2: claimed to have dissociative identity disorder and that and he claimed that a different personality of his was actually committing the murders. There's a little flaw with that. Most of the time when somebody has DID, they don't remember what their other personalities are doing. So the fact that he would be able to
0: draw where the bodies are doesn't really fit with that diagnosis. Yeah, and that's something he goes to claim in court. He he does and the defense claims that he is innocent because of reason of insanity or not guilty by reason of insanity is the correct way to say that. And I'm going to go through the trial here a little bit and give you guys some more details so we can discuss it more thoroughly. So February 6, 1980 was the day that John Wayne Gacy's trial first started. It was such a publicized case that they had to select jurors from 50 miles north in Rockford, Illinois, to be the jurors on the case, so it wasn't as biased. And like I said, he was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, and I decided to look up the court's definition of what insanity is, so I'm going to read that to you real quick. Insanity is a mental illness of such a severe nature that a person cannot distinguish fantasy from reality, cannot conduct his or her affairs due to psychosis, or is subject to an uncontrollable, impulsive behavior. I think the big one here is distinguishing fantasy from reality. In this case, at least, um, I'm going to go a little bit more into the defense and prosecution's sides for this The defense has experts testify that John Wayne Gacy fits that insanity definition. And some of them say he has amnesia. Some say schizophrenic. Some say his borderline personality disorder. And the prosecution, they, of course, go against this. And they say that there's no... Well, the defense had said that there was no way he premeditated the crimes. But prosecution came in and was like, he built these burial chambers, I guess, or under his crawlspace before the murders. And he also had handcuffs and rope ready.
1: The only little bit of evidence that I would say suggests that this DID was possible or maybe accurate was when he was working in the morgue and the behavior that he was exhibiting. He described as it took him by surprise. He was almost scared of his own behavior and that caused him to move back into his abusive household. I can't really think of another reason why he would just willingly go back to that life if he already has a job and, I mean, I guess a place to stay. But that seems like a pretty compelling reason to move back somewhere, as if you're experiencing some very scary psychological events that you can't explain and it just seems to be happening on their own.
0: So then you're saying, like, he kind of began off with that dissociative disorder and just went into it even more deeply?
1: Uh, Maybe. I'm just wondering if maybe there's some sort of middle ground between a psychological real issue in his head and using some parts of that to sort of claim insanity and get out of some of these some of the things that he's being accused of doing because it seems like obviously something wrong is going on in his head not just from the perspective of he's killing people but something compelled him to go back into an abusive childhood just willingly. So to me there's a small shred of um, likeliness that, that something real was there that has, has to do with dissociative identity disorder.
0: Well, I also, I mean, 100% agree, for me at least, and a lot of people I know when I was reading thought this, you have to have something wrong in your head to be able to murder 33 people.
2: Yeah, so actually, he had multiple psych evaluations done before he went on trial. And the one they actually diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, which is referred to as sociopath. So I have the definition of that as well. It's a mental condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. And then it says that people with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly or with callous indifference. They show no guilt or remorse for their behavior.
0: It's interesting with that because he plays on both sides because He knew he was wrong with the morgue stuff. He knew there was something wrong with him in doing that, and that's why he left.
1: I wonder if it's a blend of the two issues where one of his personalities has the antisocial personality disorder. So when he becomes his other personality, it has the traits of of this antisocial personality. And so when his brain is in a different personality he's acting with callous indifference and then when he you know snaps back to his actual personality then he starts to realize the bad things that he's just done and then maybe the older he gets that changes and maybe he just takes on the new personality more and more which is why he goes from just you know making advances towards people towards to actually killing them
0: it's interesting you say that because that indifference thing or the callous emotions you're talking about they talk about a lot during the trial how he showed no emotion, even through the testimony of one of his victims who lived that ended up having to leave the sand because he was throwing up and crying from retelling the story. And Erica, I think you know a little bit about, about that story if you wanted to let us know.
2: Yeah, so John Wayne Gacy actually had two victims that survived that were able to testify against him during the trial. The first one was Jeffrey Rignall, which is who you were talking about, that had to leave the scene. And he testified that he was walking to a bar when John offered him a ride. And once he was in the car, John covered Jeffrey's face with a chloroform-soaked rag until he was unconscious and then John took Jeffrey into his home offered him a drink and I'm unsure as to whether or not Jeffrey accepted this drink but John was reported by Jeffrey to be very comfortable with himself in this situation which I just feel like that's not a situation where you, where most people would feel comfortable. Jeffrey was then chloroformed again and woke up tied to a wooden board and suspended by chains. Jeffrey was then sexually assaulted and raped with unknown objects. He stated that he was in and out of consciousness throughout this attack. And the next thing he remembers is waking up in a park near his house in Chicago, wearing only his jeans. Jeffrey testified that John was, in his opinion, clinically insane and that he believed this quote, by the beastly and animalistic ways he attacked me, end quote, which is weird that he quoted it as animalistic because Bryce quoted him as animalistic earlier too. And I'm not going to go into those details of the attack because they're absolutely horrible and I don't want to think about them ever again. But if you'd like to know more about them, you can go to law.justia.com and read more about it.
0: See, and the prosecution, you know, They're not calling him insane, they're basically calling him evil. They're saying, like I said, it was premeditated and they pick apart every possible mental illness they are pegging him with. They're saying he also deliberately picked out victims that wouldn't be missed, as we know from those eight that were never identified because they were runaways or in some type of like sex traffic or something like that, we can assume, which there would have to be thought into that.
2: Yeah, well, even his first victim, Timothy McCoy, I mean, it took like 14 years before they were able to identify who he was, and he was on his way home from a family vacation.
0: The amnesia thing was easily put to bed because if he had amnesia and like could not remember the crimes, how was he able to draw a s- detailed sketch of where the bodies were in his house? The prosecution had what they call the gallery of grief, It was all the photos of the known victims up on a board, and I saw where the lead prosecutor, in his final statement, he was talking about if they wanted to give mercy. He pulled all the pictures of the victims off the board and said, give him as much mercy as John Wayne Gacy gave these victims, and he actually threw their photos into a part of the crawlspace that they had brought in for evidence, and I was blown away by that. I felt like that was a full-on mic drop for me. I was like, whoo, get them. <laughs> I thought it was really a good way to portray that he was doing something so bad. And I don't think he should have been given any mercy for it, personally. That's, I mean, a personal opinion, I guess, but...
2: No, after
0: 33,
2: at minimum, victims, you know what you're doing, and you know that you shouldn't be doing it, especially if you're burying the bodies to hide it. You know that there's something wrong. You don't hide something unless you don't want to share it with people because of one reason or another.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the jury saw it that way, too. And they unanimously found him guilty. And he was then sentenced to death. A couple of interesting things I did find during my research. One was during the trial, Gacy circled this, like, ad for a St. Patrick's Day party in a newspaper that was coming up and gave it to, like, I don't know, one of his lawyers and said that he was going to be there and stuff. So, like, he really thought he was going to be found innocent of these crimes. And he would joke that the only thing he was guilty of was, quote, running a cemetery without a license, end quote.
2: That is not okay on any level. I...
0: It's interesting, to say the least. That's just not the right
1: way to think about that.
0: No. And... Later on, when I was watching his interviews, he's talking about insanity, please not belonging in courtroom, because he talks about how Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't able to be not guilty by insanity. And he said, quote, if Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't meet the requirements for insanity, then I would hate to run into the guy who does, end quote. And I don't know why that that stuck with me. I was like, I just I think it goes back to everybody's own kind of interpretation of what insanity is. One of the defense lawyers was talking about in a documentary I watched about how people in their head think of people who are insane as not being able to even like function and just running around the streets going wild. And I'm like, I think there's just so many different levels to it.
1: Well, I guess the question then becomes, if Dahmer does not classify as this type of insanity, what are you supposed to do with people? that are insane. If, you know, let's say Dhamma really did have that type of insanity. Like what do you what are you supposed to do with them? If they are insane and they're seen as not guilty because of that, then what do you do with those people? Because obviously they're an incredible threat to society. So what do you do with them? I mean what's what's the alternative to just them being guilty for that stuff.
0: Yeah, and even if you're not technically guilty, air quotes all around, of committing the crimes because you're disassociated with it, um you're still committing these heinous things and you have to figure out what to do with those people. And I guess it kind of goes back to like rehabilitation versus persecution and what's the right move for each individual person, which is a big thing in politics.
2: Well, and this is something that's really changed. You and I were talking about it while researching this. It's really changed since the late 1970s and the 1980s. To this day, like a lot of people that plead insane is more... Not the people that we think are insane in the sense that of like the everyday word where it's like you're insane because you did this. But it's more people that actually have some sort of debilitating developmental or mental disorder. And nowadays it is pretty much more focused on the rehabilitation. So even if they end up in prison for committing the crime and they have been granted insanity, they're getting... What they need in the help in prison while not being left on the streets to keep committing crimes.
0: That's probably the only way to really go about it is to try to treat them. But also they need to be in a facility where they don't have access or the opportunity to commit something like this.
2: Also, to go with the insanity thing, there's another testimony from another victim of John Wayne Gacy's that survived, Michael Reed, and he testified that he was a homosexual and had met John Wayne Gacy in Illinois, and that after a short conversation, John paid Michael to have sex with him. Michael then stated that he was not doing well financially at the time that he met him, and so John offered him a job, and he accepted and ended up moving in with John for a short time until he was like back on his feet. Michael testified that there was a night in John's garage where Michael was bent over grabbing fuses from the ground and John hit him with a hammer. Michael states that this shocked him. And when he turned around, John was in position to hit him again. Michael stated that John had a kind of strange look in his eyes and he was able to stop the attack. And he asked John, like, what are you doing? And John claimed that he didn't know what had come over him, but he felt that he'd wanted to kill Michael. John then helped Michael patch up the wound on his head, and Michael testified that he and John had had an argument shortly before the attack happened. Michael then also testified that there was a time a few weeks before this attack that they were breaking into a home together, and John tried to attack him with a tire iron, but Michael saw the attack coming and asked John like what he was doing again and John just claimed that he thought that there was trouble and he was just trying to defend himself but Michael stated that John was like standing over him with the tire iron basically pointed
0: at his head I think it's interesting that John Wayne Gacy keeps going back to that he was just defending himself tactic I guess I think because in my head it's so ludicrous I just want to be clear that self-defense means
2: that the other person is trying to end your life, and so you defend your life by attacking them. It's not just out of anger or anything. It's motivated because somebody else is attacking you.
0: And I guess, you know, he talks about, that testimony talks about the look in Gacy's eyes and how it's like he wasn't himself almost. I just can't imagine that anybody really looks like themselves if it's someone you trust and like spend time with and then they're coming after you with a tire iron. Either way, like I said, he was found guilty and they decided that he needed to be executed while he was in prison. He did some interesting things. Along with that interview that I've been talking about, he found painting, and he would paint clowns, like his alter ego, Pogo, and Patches, and he painted some religious stuff, and also some Disney paintings, like Seven Dwarves and stuff as well. Another thing I found out in his interview, he logged everything he did down to, like, when he would have conversations with people, when he went and showered or ate or anything. He had a book Of every minute of his day. And I just found that so interesting. I wonder why. If it was like he thought somebody would read it and find it entertaining, or what do you guys think?
1: Maybe he was trying to keep himself accountable by having a record of what he's actually doing in case his personality does slip up and he suddenly realizes, like, hey, I just wrote down six things I don't remember doing. Um. So maybe he was curious about his own brain at that point, if he wasn't lying about his multiple personalities.
2: I also think that maybe he was just bored and it was something to kind of fill his time and just to write out what you're doing. A lot of people do journaling even that aren't in prison. I mean, it's a typical thing that people do and a lot of people just do it so that they have it written down. And I think for some people it's really
0: calming and almost therapeutic to write down things like that. I think too and this might be stretching, I'm not sure, but we talk about knowing right and wrong and feeling remorse, and I think he's finding these ways to disassociate himself from the situation he's in, and I guess for me, it seems like he is feeling some type of remorse. Or not remorse necessarily, maybe it's shit, I got caught, I need something to do because I'm miserable. I don't know, it could be one or the other, I guess.
2: I feel like that there's any sort of remorse or regret. It's the regret that he got caught because he spent 10 years committing crimes like this and none of that caused remorse. So I just have a hard time believing that he just all of a sudden was remorseful.
0: Yeah, I also saw too in the interviews that they asked him if he was ready to face God and answer to him. And he said that he knows, he said, if you live a life where you're doing the right thing, that you're not like scared to meet God going into the afterlife. And I guess and him saying that is saying he's fine. He didn't do anything wrong, which, like I said, at this point, he's claiming now that he didn't kill anybody and other people had keys to his house, whatever. But it's interesting that he is so comfortable with whatever he did or didn't do that he's like, I'm good. I'm gonna go to heaven.
2: Yeah, I just I don't know that that's quite how it works. But along with you saying that other people had keys to his house, there was a testimony that went with Jeffrey Rignall. And he said that when he was in and out of consciousness, he saw another person in the room with John that was watching everything happen.
0: Yeah, I did read that the defense says there's overwhelming evidence that he might have had accomplices, but they've never, I guess that we know of looked more into it to find somebody to convict but there are testimonies like that and people who say that he didn't do it all himself. And this is something I, I wrote down when Erica was talking about, actually, his fir- the first victim was stabbed to death, which is not his M.O. because he liked to strangle or asphyxiate his victims. And I did see one of them die from suffocation, but it was from a bag being over their head. And it happens less often than most where a serial killer changes how they would kill somebody.
2: Well, and I'm just wondering with the first victim that was stabbed to death, if maybe that was just kind of what he had there and if it was his first victim then maybe he did it once and then decided oh this is too messy i need a cleaner
0: way to kill possibly yeah and just kind of finding what he wants to do and what works for him which is a sick way to say it but you know he clearly found something he preferred his execution date was set for may 10th 1994 this was 14 years after his conviction His last meal was Kentucky Fried Chicken, original recipe, French fries, fried shrimp, and fresh strawberries, which is an interesting combo. When the day of his execution came, there were crowds, tons of people outside. Most of them in support of his execution. A few people who are against the death penalty, obviously protesting. Just after midnight, he was given three lethal injections and he was pronounced dead at 12.58 a.m. So that would have been May 11th, 1994. I did see that when they put in the first injection, for some reason it like gelled up and didn't work. So it ended up taking 18 minutes for him to actually die, which... Afterwards an official said it was still a much easier death than most of his victims or all of his victims endured. A few months after his execution there was this big ceremony and they had a big bonfire and of his paintings they ended up with 25 of them and burned them and there was all families of the victims and people who were there to detest John Wayne Gacy there was over 3,000 people there however I did read that there was 19 other paintings that had been sold that are still either at museums or in circulation I am not sure where they're all at
2: There are some actually at the Alcatraz East Museum that Bryce and I visited in Pigeon Forge. They have that along with like his coat and his wallet that he had on him when he was captured. And then some of like his drawing utensils that he had.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine most of them are probably, like I said, at museums, except for those few collectors who I guess are interested, which there's a whole niche to the dark memorabilia, I guess. Um, You could find those online. They're worth like thousands of dollars. Overall, I think he got, I mean, probably less than what he deserved. I think the jury was correct to convict him. And it's it's just a sad story.
2: Yeah. So one thing that I found kind of interesting as I was researching this is the property that he lived at in Chicago is actually like it was just listed for sale a week and a half ago. The house was torn down years ago, but You can go and look at the property if you want. It's not hard to type in. Just type in John Wayne Gacy's house. And the house is listed for like $459,000 or something crazy like that.
0: So if y'all are looking to live in a murder house, go ahead and hit that up. I will not be. (laughs) I think we can all agree that John Wayne Gacy is one of history's most horrific serial killers. And I am glad that that chapter is closed. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at CrimeOverCoffeePod at Outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica dash Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.